8th. Um, I can't believe Tuesday is over. I mean, February is over. Um, can, do we have anyone online? Great. Why don't we start with introductions online? Good afternoon, Robin Kanich at large. That's it? Okay, wonderful. And then we will go in chambers and we'll start to my right today. Good afternoon. I'm glad Tuesday, I mean, February is over as well. Um, Chris Hines, Denver's Perfect 10. Amanda Sandoval, District 1, Northwest Denver. Jamie Torres, District 3. All right, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, we have two action items today, and we're going to start with 23-0160. Um, Lisa, go ahead and introduce yourself and take it away. Good afternoon, Lisa Lumley, Director of Real Estate. So I am here today with um, an amendment with the Denver Post. Uh, this would be the Fifth Amendment. So in 2021, the Division of Real Estate with Dottie and its consultants started working on um, a, an overview of the web building for a web capacity project. We know that our employees both at Web and the Denver Post um, are working in a hybrid environment, still sharing workstations as well, and we, with the continued growth we've experienced, we still have some issues there. Um, one, especially at Web, is that we have furniture that is 21 years old. Um, we no longer can replace it, it's no longer manufactured, and we no longer have uh, additional furniture and storage to use. The leases at the Denver Post start to roll this year in August um, for the first and the seventh floor. And our intention long-term, and most of you today I've spoken with, if not, I will be following up with you on a larger web conversation. Um, but our goal is to work in web so that we can bring our Denver Post employees back into the building. So the Fifth Amendment um, to sublease agreement would allow us to extend just the seventh floor for 18 months, which will make it coterminous with the eighth floor. Um, we will, the intention is we will still give back the first floor and we will bring those folks in in another location. Um, this would be again with DP Media Network, LLC. Uh, square footage of the seventh floor, we would be retaining 36,299. With the first floor, we would be giving back 9,206 um, square feet. The proposed contract amount would be $1,908,964.50 for a pro uh, proposed new maximum contract amount of $43,475,116.90. Or $16.90 which will include our rent and our operating expenses. So our requested action today is the approval of the four, or Fifth Amendment to the sublease agreement with DP Media Network LLC, extending the seventh floor space at 101 West Colfax Avenue through February 28th of 2025. And with that, are there any questions? All right, thank you, Lisa. I'm gonna, since you went so quickly, I'm gonna give it a second to see if there are questions. Council President Torres. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Lisa. Um, just can you remind me which departments are affected by um, these changes? There are um, on the seventh floor, this would be retaining. Um, on that floor, there is uh, behavioral health, a group out of DDPHE. We have civil service, we have uh, technology service groups up there. I'm forgetting somebody else, but we have a number of them. On the first floor, it is an internal one that I'm happy to share with you later. Okay, 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 thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair. Great, thank you. Um, and Lisa, I don't see any other questions, but I've got a couple. Mm -hmm. um, 
So one of the concerns as we're out on the campaign trail that we hear from residents is, you know, uh, are we staffed up enough? And if we aren't staffed up enough, is the staff we do have in the office, you know, getting things done? Um, so I just want to make sure if we are extending this lease for office space that it is going to be adequate to ensure that our staff is staying, uh, showing up downtown as many days as we are requiring, which I believe at this point is three at a minimum. Um, and then that we, um, you know, are providing them the workspace that they need to be able to get their stuff done. What I will say is, as of the current moment, um, agencies are working as best as they can with the existing furniture components we have, and which means they may be sharing space. I know that there are some agencies that have had to ask for an exception because they just don't even have a number of workstations for them to share. We are trying to work with them as best as we can to make sure, though, that everybody has some combination of a seat or some location to work from. Okay, that's great. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, you'll come back and present more on the long-term plan for Correct. what which we're is the with. one that we're then the goal would be to really be able to address as many seats as we need to going in, forward in web and then correct. So we'll relinquish this full. Um, that is the goal in 18 months, fingers crossed, uh, not full. It's just, uh, in 18 months, it would be the seventh floor and the eighth floor. Seven. We still will have nine and 11. Okay. So within 18 months, the goal is, um, of the four remaining floors that we'll have there, we will move staff, uh, back to, to web of on two, two of, of those floors and then keep the other four, Correct. keep the other two for, we can uh, until they start to roll. Yeah. Yep. Okay, great. Thank mm -hmm. you so much. Um, a couple of other people have jumped into the queue. Councilman Sandoval. <clears throat> Thank you. One question I have for you, Lisa, for the people who are on the first floor, mm -hmm. when, when will they be notified where they're moving to? We're already talking to them and working with them on a couple options so that they have involvement with that and are comfortable with what that would be. Okay, I just met with one of the agencies on Friday and they said they hadn't been contacted. Um, so just hoping that we can figure it out. Cause I think it depends on which, on seventh floor, the truth is we're not we're the not seventh, the first floor that is being. I've engaged. been on two calls with them, so I'll follow up with you. But I will also we've got regular we've had some regular calls with them. Okay. But it's in our court right now. There are some things I needed to confirm before we get back to them. But I want to say we had a call two weeks ago. Okay. So okay. So when I met with them on Friday, you hadn't been in touch with them. I think that they're just anxious about what, where they're going to go. Understand. And they to get set up. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Madam uh -huh. Chair. Great. Thank you, Councilmember Ortega. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, I saw the $43 million price tag for the upgrades. Is that a separate contract that's going to be coming? Or the upgrades. having that as part of today's agenda? So this is just the extension for the Denver Post, Denver Post building. Right. So when will we see that one? Well, I don't have a price yet for you. Um, okay. But yes, there, we will be coming back with a different, first of all, briefing for each of you. Okay. Um, and then a presentation. It probably were at least a month or two, maybe actually off before we do that. Okay. But we will have individual briefings. With so I want to see like who the contractors are, what's the MWBE goals yes. on it, yes. um, how much of the building does that cover, all of those kinds of things. Yep, we'll be prepared okay. to address Great. all of that. Okay, thanks. Uh -huh. All right, thank you. I'm going to give it just one more second. Um, Looks like no other questions. Do we need a voice vote or just everyone thumbs up? We're ready to move this to the floor. 
And we've got council president moved, uh, council member Hines seconded. So we'll see you on the floor. Thank you. Okay, um, second presentation is 23-0199. Um, and we've got John Griffin from our city attorney's office presenting for us. So we'll just take a minute to do the technology switch over here and then we'll go ahead and get started with that. Um, and there are 15 minutes of public comment that were set aside for this presentation. No one has signed up to speak for that 15 minutes. Uh -oh. <laughs> I just go to full screen. You've got this, John. <laughs> no, it's butchered. I was hoping to be faster than Lisa, and I've already, already taken too long. Thank you. Um, so, uh, Jonathan Griffin, Deputy Legislative Counsel. I'm here just to present on elected charter official pay setting. Um, I was going to say this presentation is pretty similar for those of you who were here four years ago, but actually we've got a pretty new uh, crowd today, so um, I'll take my time through it. Uh, so the charter is the one that sets the pay process uh, for Denver City Council and for all elected charter officials. Um, it's pretty prescriptive on what can be used. It says after January 1st of any election, but before the general election, which this year is, in, is April 4th, um, the salaries must be fixed by ordinance for the ensuing term within the limits, uh, and it can't exceed the lesser of the consumer price index. Uh, it says here, Denver, Boulder, Greeley, we've now hit a successor index that's got Lakewood involved in it, um, and or the mean salary of employees in the career service, and they have to, council has to use the lesser than. So council's role in this is council is responsible for presenting and approving the ordinance change for all elected, elected charter official pay levels. OHR provided us all the data we're gonna see today. And while council has very rigid requirements on what they can do as far as minimums and maximums, council has a lot of discretion in how the final numbers are applied, which we'll talk about in the next slide. All of these salary changes will take effect on the election July 17th, 2023, or upon swearing in July 17th, 2023. So if we hit the Wayback Machine and we head into 20, 2007, so the Charter Amendment that we're working under was originally passed in 2003. Um, so 2007 was the first year the Council had the power to set um, salary increases. In 2007, the Council set, to, set the salaries for 2007 to the 6.34 cap. Um, and did that for all four years. Uh, the next time in 2011, we had a phase in in salaries. There was no increase for the first two years and then a phased increase to the 6.6 .6 cap. Um, that occurred due to some financial hardship, but 2011 was the beginning of the recession and uh, it was an effort to uh, help finance out um, with this, uh, similar to how most members gave back some of their salary uh, during the most recent uh, issues with COVID. Uh, in 2015, there was no increase uh, in the first year and then steady increases to reach the 10.3 cap. And finally, uh, in 2019, steady increases all four years to reach the 10.07 cap. Um, so this is the data OHR has provided. Um, as you can see, uh, the CPIU change is 15.42 and the mean career service percent change is 9.32. 
bless her, those two being 9.32, and that is how we are applying. So this lists the current salaries, um, council and all elected charter officials will be taking the full salary um, to begin with. Uh, it's important to kind of note, all of these pay situations are always retroactive. So while council hasn't been getting a raise the last four years and why, while all no elected charter officials been getting raises the last four years, um, this is what's calculated in to give them those raises. Um, and you can see here the new numbers, uh, council president, uh, 123,000, I won't belabor it. Uh, you can see that and um, that's it. And I'm here for questions. All right, as I mentioned before, there was 15 minutes of public comment, but no one has signed up. Um, do we have questions from any members of council? Councilmember Ortega. So John, just to be clear, these the salary increase for the next four-year cycle is, is consistent across the board, but it doesn't go into effect until those newly elected officials are elected and sworn in, correct? That's correct, yeah. Under uh, the charter and the state constitution, uh, elected officials cannot make any changes to their salary during the period uh, right. uh, that they're in office. So how, how does that um, work when we have actually done that. We've made changes. So that's a great question. That's something we've been looking into. Um, so uh, under an attorney general opinion and other under some state law or under some, some uh, case law from other jurisdictions, once uh, salary is set and once there's a compliance with the charter and kind of council's hands are off of it, uh, it's not considered an increase. Um, the, the salaries are set at this time and therefore, if, if they're phased in or in some jurisdictions, they have a process where just automatically there is uh, an increase set in, it doesn't, it is not considered uh, and, an And increase. I guess I'm not referring to where it's been raised, where if you recall, we had adopted the salary and then somewhere, you know, as people were getting ready to step into the new position, there was a recommendation in one case from the council president to have, um, and I don't know how this applied to all of the other elected offices, but I know with city council, for example, um, instead of the amount being the same all four years, city council only took half of that percentage increase in the first two years, and then it went into effect in the last two years. Right. So just curious how and again, because all of that was set prior to the new council being seated, it wasn't considered an increase um, under our law and not co and considered consistent with the Constitution. And yeah, but in that case, it wasn't an increase. It was actually a decrease um, in the way that it was set up. And so um, that was done before everybody got sworn in, but it, it's my recollection it was... Um, I don't remember the timing of when that happened. I thought it was once the council was seated, but um, you know, I think for the, the purpose of what we're talking about here today, we have a prescriptive process. It's consistent for all of the elected offices, nothing to do with the appointees. That's done on an annual basis, right? Okay, so I just wanted to, to get some clarification on if council decided, for example, they wanted to do 
what was done in the past where it breaks it up. Um, that has to be done before anybody is seated, even though it may deviate from what the charter calls for. That's correct. The charter doesn't set a floor at all for council salaries uh, or for, for any elected salary. It only sets a ceiling. So as far as anything goes, um, if there was even a decision to lower all salaries for some reason, um, that would be perf perfectly admittable under the charter. Um, to your uh, example earlier, um, I don't. I wasn't here when when that happened. But to use the COVID example, um, you know, members couldn't have their salaries reduced. No elected official could have their salary reduced. You actually had to to in order to to take the same uh, reductions that that other staff took. You know, actually write a check is my understanding. Yeah, some you know. of us did that. Yeah, most most <laughs> of you did. Okay. Thank you. Mm. Great, thank you. And Councilmember Ortega, I apologize, I did not formally recognize you, so consider yourself formally recognized. Thanks. Um, and I believe that Councilmember Sedebaca has also joined us online. Um, let's go online now to Councilmember Kniech. Thank you, uh, Council Chair, very much. And thank you, John, for your presentation. This is the third time I've had the pleasure of fulfilling our charter duty to um, do these uh, adjustments that are required. And so wanted to just ask, um, the charter requires just looking at these two calculations and um, choosing the lesser of the two. But each time we do have questions from our community and our constituents about comparable electives. And so I wanted to ask whether or not um, anyone in our central staff had looked at, um, for example, um, and we have done this in some previous cycles, um, what comparable uh, city elected uh, salaries were for um, peer cities or for, um, we are the only full-time city council in the state of Colorado, but we do have um, county commissioners in the state of Colorado and we are a city and a county. So we do serve the role as county commissioners, um, which we do have peers of those in the state of Colorado. So I was just curious um, if any of that data was collected by our central staff um, leading up to this committee meeting? So um, I have some data that was collected by OHR. Um, it's high level uh, to, to drill down into which jurisdictions they spoke to. We'd have to, to go back to them. But based on the data they provided, um, the mayor is paid about 4% above median market rate. Council members are paid at market median rate. Um, the auditor, there, for council president, elected clerk and recorder, um, there wasn't sufficient data to make a decision. And for the auditor, um, they are 12% above market rate. Thank you for that. Um, I did just pull up the data from the state of Colorado. Um, the salaries are set by um, Colorado revised statute. It looks like Senate bill 2265 set the salaries. And according to what I'm reading and John, you can verify this perhaps for me. It looks like the 2023 salaries for county officers sets the county commissioner salary for um, class um, category one counties, which I believe would be the peer counties for the city and county of Denver, which would be like the largest counties in the state of Colorado. Um, the county commissioner salary would be $131,701. Um, I don't know if you, you know, maybe you wanna get back to us after committee because I'm, I'm looking this up, but um, 
you know, for the largest counties in the state of Colorado, the counterparts to, to the size of county that Denver is with, you know, more than 700,000 residents, that that would be the comparable salary. Is that, um, does that sound right to you in terms of what I'm citing in terms of the, the, the class of county um, in, in the salary range? Okay, yeah, the sky says it's right and I listen to sky, so. I just, I think that these are important just data points in terms of, again, our charter doesn't specifically look to any of these, but in terms of the questions our community asks, in terms of how these particular data points compare, I just think it's information that may be of interest to individuals. Um, again, our charter requires us to use these other formulas, but, um, and, and so I just, you know, if you can go back to that presentation, I think um, it, it seems to me that even, even with the formula, we would be, the salaries for the city council members would be less than the salary would be under the state statute for county commissioners. Is that correct? We would be getting paid less than our counterpart county commissioners, for example, in El Paso County. Is that correct? Yeah, I believe so. Based so, on, on the information you provided. So just interesting data point. I think those are my questions, Madam Chair. Okay, great. Thank you, Council President Torres. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, I think that's a, a, a helpful data distinction that um, Councilman Kanich mentioned because those county commissioners are also not city council members of their community. So, um, I, but what but my question for you, John, was just about um, uh, maybe charter change, if that's what's required to take this out of council's hands every four years. Um, uh, that would be have to, that would have to be something we'd have to go into that document to to formalize um, for us not to have to vote on it that it would be prescriptive. Yes, uh, that's correct, and uh, there are surrounding jurisdictions uh, that do that that way. Um, you know, we would need to work with with a member if they were interested in doing so afterwards. Um, our office has been looking into it. Currently, we think that any charter change wouldn't be able to go into effect until 2027 due to the constitutional requirements, um, but we're still kind of looking into that to, to get further along. But, um, and there, there's a few more particular, you know, with anything that's a charter change, the devil's in the details, but we'd be happy to work with, with a member. And a big picture, yes, council okay. would have the ability to make this an automatic raise um, or deduction or whatever, along with, with some data point. Right, okay, thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair. All right, thank you. Seeing no other questions, can I please have a mover and a seconder? Moved by Council President Torres, seconded by Council Member Hines. Do we need a voice vote or are we thumbs up on this one? All right, well then it will move forward to the floor. Thank you, John. Um, we have an executive session today, so the committee will now enter into an executive session for the purpose of discussing matters related to ongoing litigation covered under the attorney-client privilege. A two-thirds vote of members is required to enter executive session. May I please have a motion? All right, moved by Councilmember Hines, seconded by Councilmember Ortega. Um, we will at this time go into executive session. Thank you.
Well, you told me about that one. Probably the best series I've watched in the last five years. It's amazing. Uh, action thriller. Um, it's really good. Also, um, Lucifer, the Dexter spinoff. I'm trying to think of my like recent. I can't get into any of these shows. I don't know what's wrong with me. <laughs> well, if you keep, they're so popular. Yeah. If you keep falling asleep so easily into TV shows, it sounds like the Demandy's coffee has to get onto the market sooner. That is true. Yeah. One last segment with Mandy and Daria when Sidewalks Entertainment returns. Hey, did you hear about Jen? No, what happened? She posted something she really shouldn't have. See? <gasps> oh, that is so not cool. What was she thinking? Well, she can't take it back now. But what if people at school find out? Oh. She's going to be in big trouble. Stop and think before you connect. Sharing online is serious business. Learn how you can stay safe online at dhs.gov slash stop think connect. Hey, everybody. Heart disease affects one in every three women in America, but you can fight back. There's no time to lose. Mothers, sisters, daughters, families, and friends, it's time to shout louder, stand stronger, and demand change. Let's go. To the Batmobile. Dang it. To the invisible jet! Dang it. Together, we can put an end to heart disease. It's time to go red for women. I could use your help. Yeah! Learn more from the American Heart Association at www.goredforwomen.org. Make-A-Wish grants a wish every 17 minutes. I know that sounds pretty magical, but in fact, it takes more than magic. It takes muscle. So, when a kid like Fabian wishes to be a superstar, Things happen. Whoa! Or when Kahim transforms into Super Kahim. <laughs> he feels invincible. It's because wishes have proven physical and emotional benefits that can give children with critical illnesses a higher chance of survival. Help us make sure every wish comes true. Join us at wish.org. So, sweetie, tell me about your day. Well, today, actually, I was driving to the grocery store and I saw a dog. Oh, you saw a dog? Daddy. Put your phone in the basket. The basket's so crowded, though. Just put it in. Oh, wait. Put it in the basket. In the basket. Put it in the basket, right? It's an easy thing. Just put it in the basket. Please put it in the basket. Thanks. Thanks. All right. Let's see what we can get this meal. Dinner as long time. as it's in the basket, though, I can technically still touch it, right? From hosts, producers, and our technical crew, Sidewalks is produced by a creative group of individuals. We hope you continue to watch us on TV and visit us on our website. Thank you for being a part of Sidewalks Entertainment. Well, the bottom line is this. You two are not lazy. Uh, most people would be on international global television weekly for 10 years practically and go, that's enough work. That in the touring, nope, you're making these brand things happen. Uh, so what is the best way to follow up and keep on track with the latest and greatest from Demandies? What are the social handles? It's at Demandies with a Z on everything, Twitter, Instagram, um, it's really all we're on. Uh, and then my my personal is Sony Deville WWE on everything. Mandy, yourself? My instagram um is at mandy Sachs, 
and my Twitter is WWE underscore Mandy Rose. Thank you both so much for your time. Looking forward to getting the products here in New York as well. Yeah, Thanks. They're coming soon. Thank you. One of my first memories is of family picnics in Genesee Park. It seemed like we were going a long ways away, and yet we got there very quickly. You needed to watch your radiator gauge because the cars would overheat, and one of the reasons for having uh, water pumps in all of the parks was so that people had water for their radiators. You can stand on the ridge where Kit Carson stood and had his last campfire. And the view along that ridge is absolutely stunning. And you're standing at a place where a lot of history happened. It's amazing when you see early tourist ads for Denver, you don't see 17th Street or even Union Station. You see some lady in her sunbonnet looking out on this inspirational scene. The secret jam in Pence is really just the trail up the hillside to Independence Mountain. And that trail was built by the CCC in the 1930s. Right below Doubleheader Mountain near the Meyer Open Space Ranch in Jefferson County off Highway 285, and I came across a single bull elk all by himself who had no fear of man. It is a natural amphitheater made probably millions of years ago. In 1964, I was 10 years old, and I got to see the Beatles perform. I think the mountain parks allow us to escape into nature, but they allow us also to escape into history. that there was that much protected open space between Denver and Mount Evans. I mean, I knew about Red Rocks, and I knew about Daniels Park to the south near Castle Pines. I knew about Summit Lake and Echo Lake Parks. But I didn't know that there were 22 conservation areas that basically protect the Ponderosa Pine Forest, the granite mountaintops, the viewsheds, the things that we see from downtown Denver that very well could have had mega homes on top of them now if it hadn't been for foresighted smart people 100 years ago. J.B. Walker, my great-grandfather, was, was a great visionary, and he was a tireless promoter of Colorado and the natural beauty that we have here. He approached the Denver Chamber of Commerce, the automobile interests, and the realtors, and basically promoted this idea that this is what could set Denver apart, that we had this resource that was untapped. And he wrote very eloquently about the beauties of Colorado, the coolness of the air, and how compelling Colorado could be to visitors if only these groups would stand behind and develop these mountain parks. When Mayor Spear finally got on board with that idea, the Denver Mountain Park System really took off and the public embraced this idea. And the amazing thing about it to me is Colorado, which depends so much on tourism, didn't get around to establishing state parks until 1955. Mayor Spears way ahead of time here designating these parks. They did everything first class. 
They hired the most visionary landscape architect in the United States and in perhaps at the time in the world, the Olmsted brothers. And they had just completed a master plan for the national park system and were fresh to the idea of that interplay between man and landscape, man and nature that makes these parks so important. Frederick Law Olmsted Jr. himself comes out, rides horseback through this whole chain of mountain parks and encourages Denver to put together a string stretching all the way from Lookout Mountain south to Morrison. The original objective for the mountain parks was approximately 41,000 acres. That was beyond the city's ability to buy and to develop and to manage it. The city ultimately came up with about 14,000 acres. Since that time, other agencies have acquired land, and so the whole product is now 41,000 acres of public lands. Saco de Boer was so profoundly influenced by the National City Beautiful movement, and he worked with Olmsted in designing the Lariat Loop. One could hardly imagine any roadway in America that has more drama and rises to such an elevation and crescendo in such a short time. The Chief Hosa Lodge, designed by Jacques Benedict, which is in fact this great symphony of the materials right from that site, just piled up and assembled into this public cathedral for celebration of the landscape. The picnic parks are kind of the ones along Bear Creek that are really pretty spectacular. These individual little jams near major roadways like Phileas. Some of them have trails, some have fishing access. As time passed, roads got better, the cars got better. There were mountain parks farther away, so then we have mountain parks such as Summit Lake and Echo Lake, way up in the mountains, 13,000 feet high, tremendous diversity up in the Alpine area. Later on, George Cranmer, another great visionary, he was the person who developed Red Rocks Amphitheater. Well, he loved to ski, and he said, we need a place where people can ski. So he developed Winter Park Ski Area. That's a great hallmark of the Denver Mountain Parks, is you can golf, you can ski, you can hike, and see a tremendous variety of landscape. Another one of the great masterpieces of this country that belongs to the Denver Mountain Park System, designed by Burnham Hoyt, is the Red Rocks Amphitheater. And those who perform there and those who experience those performances never cease to be awed by the power of nature and great design in harmony. After the Second World War, the focus was really on the city's parks, in the city. So the Denver Mountain Parks were sort of neglected. In 2008, there was a master plan created for the Denver Mountain Parks, which was the first plan that had been created since Olmsted did his plan in 1914. So it was long overdue. One of the things that they discovered when they put the plan together was that many people who were using mountain parks had no idea that they were in a Denver Mountain Park. The master plan has specific recommendations, but it also has system-wide recommendations. And within the system-wide recommendations, we really looked at how the Denver Mountain Park system could be better and improved for trails and access and recreation and a connection into the surrounding open spaces and surrounding communities. There's only so much that taxpayer dollars can do to maintain and to preserve those parks. So the Denver Mountain Parks Foundation was created several years ago to enhance what the city can do in order to keep our parks at the best possible level, not just for people today, but for future generations as well. Part of what is important for people to understand is that as the population increases in Colorado, 
these resources are going to become even more valuable as open spaces. There's 70 some percent of Denver's open space and they have historically been funded with 1.4% of the, only the parks and rec budget. The future of the mountain parks is bright if they're used for what they can be used for. They shouldn't just be warehoused and they shouldn't be done piecemeal. They need to be taken a look at in a larger sense of forest management, recreation opportunities, and intergovernmental cooperation. When you think about the goal and the fundamental value of the Denver Mountain Park System, it's having a system that close to home where everyone from every diverse background can really participate in that connection to nature. Connecting kids with nature is a critical part of every child's upbringing. There's so much we can learn from being outdoors and being in nature, and they're an ideal laboratory for teaching kids of all ages about the wonderful world in which we live. It is the opportunity to put a park, a trail, an open space, a wildlife area in everybody's backyard so that every child and family has an opportunity to retreat to nature and to feel better, not just physically but psychologically. You think about those who imagined this place for future generations and to say that this will be held in public trust forever was an absolutely magnificent dream. And it's important to not only preserve the Denver Mountain Parks, but dream magnificent dreams like this again for future generations. My hope is that you'll see the city of Denver doing a better job, being better trustees of the mountain parks, and really doing everything we can to promote and to engage people more in our mountain parks. So the future, I think, is a collaborative one. And I think the time to get going on that is now. I think the centennial of the mountain parks really marks the beginning of a new generation of parks and open space stewardship in the front range. The Denver Mountain Parks are truly a precious resource that our predecessors have left us and I think we have a huge obligation to future generations to preserve and enhance those mountain parks. Summit Lake Park and the herds of mountain goats everywhere is very special and how friendly they are to people and how good the photos are because they're intimate with you. These are very special alpine places that are as good as some of the places I backpack 50 miles to get to.
puppies give us hope. There's always hope with puppies. I'm Julie Buchanan, and this is Melody Buchanan. We foster puppies with the great need during the pandemic. They asked if we could take them. We usually only do it over the summer when the kids are home, um, but they needed help. And then instead of a litter, which is what we normally do, they actually had a mom. We got her on Saturday and thought we would have a week or so before she gave birth, but woke up to a howl at 5 a.m. on Sunday. Melody and I have never whelped puppies before, so we crammed and learned what we needed to do, and we were doggy doulas and gave birth to seven puppies a week ago today. We're raising a litter of puppies, which if there wasn't a pandemic during this time, we'd all be at work and school and we wouldn't have any time at all to raise these seven floofballs. And every time someone walks through the dining room and looks at them, they smile, so that, that gives me hope too, that it helps with the stress. <laughs> they're much more active and they're bringing us joy because they're waddling around and wobbling and yeah. tonight they ate so much that they couldn't even walk and just passed out right where they fell. <laughs> they dragged their bellies across the floor and fell asleep. So. And today we have Stella and Pluto, two of the pups. Um, we are in week four of lockdown. Uh, pups are actually weeks old today. They're okay. about five or six pounds each, uh, so healthy little babies. Um, they are, eyes are open and they're they making outside sounds. For the first time and today. today was their first adventure outside. They dined al fresco and got to play around and explore and so they're whooped. Just weighed these guys there. They're eight and nine pounds, right? <laughs> Which they were They're born huge. at one pound. They were pound. only like six pounds last week, and they were one pound when they were born. So they've been on that. a big growth curve. Um, they're growing quite a bit. Uh, it's week five. Their teeth are full in. They're full on playing, wrestling. Mom's even wrestling with them. It is Sunday, May 3rd. We are six weeks into lockdown, and the puppies are six weeks old today. The pups are pretty puppy-ish. I mean, they're huge. Crazy. They're now almost 10 pounds. Uh, they're running, they're playing, they're eating more kibble. So six weeks is normally when the pups are listed, at least for the rescue that we w work with. Um, so their photos will go online with uh, their names and description. Um, normally what would happen is there would be an event well, most of the adoptions will be virtual now, so puppies get listed and people look for them online. Only the approved applications will get a private appointment. Um, the appointment will be down at the rescue, um, so everyone will have their masks and um, come in one-to-one -to, -one to meet. It's great that people want to help, and it's great that people want to raise a dog now that they have the time, but. I feel like a lot of people don't have the knowledge to raise a dog. There are aspects to responsible rescue, um, as well as responsible fostering, and of course what you were describing, responsible adoption. So hopefully everyone who's adopting right now is still going to keep them when they go back to work, when they're not working from home, um, when things change. You would hope that's the case. This is Cosmo. And this is Hallie. And, and this is Hallie. Wiggly, so we'll probably have to put them down. And they've been wiggling. 
And we are eight weeks into the lockdown, and the babies are eight weeks old and huge. Well, there are a few things we've been doing. We have been doing various puppy enrichment, introducing them to different objects and new environments. We've been taking them on field trips around the house and in the car. So what that does is that makes them capable of navigating objects and they won't get scared, hopefully, which is the problem with a lot of rescue dogs. Like going to the bathroom and hearing the toilet flush, coming to the kitchen and hearing the coffee grind. And they heard their first hailstorm last night, so they, they understand Colorado. We, we sat outside and watched it, watched it roll in. They were very scared of the thunder, but we were right there with them cuddling, so, so I think that helps. I get up between 5.30 and 6 with the pups. They're in their pen, they're excited, they wanna get out. And we get outside and then they all have to sit before we put down their bowls of food. So Melody's been teaching them, if you give them a piece of food each time one sits, they start, because they're big social learners, they look around and go, oh, he's sitting, so I should sit. And They make everyone I know smile. I have not yet seen anyone walk up to a puppy and not smile. It's been so great during this time. There are so many emotions during this time. There's so much uncertainty, but puppies are a known joy. And I've been sharing it with my coworkers. So these pups have joined teams meetings. Everybody smiles when a puppy shows up. I would say, anyone adopting our babies? <laughs> they go tomorrow, so we're gonna miss them. Um, I would say, focus on the connection, the bond. These are amazing little buddies and they, they will love you unconditionally. Really all the water that we collect and send to Denver is, is snowmelt. There's no pumps, it all makes its way to Denver just by gravity. Water connects us all. We have to be self-sufficient out here, taking care of the system that we are running water in, so our guys have access to all uh, the diversions and things they need to get to to do their job. Our group of guys is a unique group because they're, they're willing to work outside, they're willing to do whatever it takes. Ditch riders, we just call our canals and all that just the ditch. So I'm the guy who pretty much takes care of the whole system. There's always other ways to do a job. Me being a little shorter, I find different ways. Don't ever let anybody tell you you can't do this job or anything because it makes me a better person for knowing my limitations, knowing when I need help. We'll go out and actually measure the snow depth. We'll measure the water content. And that gives everybody in the water resource end of things an idea of what kind of water we're gonna get from that snowpack. Right when we go into winter is when we can have a lot of issues. We have different gates that'll start freezing and can turn into a headache. So that's why we're there every single day making sure that 
those backups and floods don't happen. When you say, what did you do, why this direction? It's not following the money, but following your heart and doing what makes you happy. It's just amazing to see where all that water comes from, how it makes its journey. It's unbelievable. This job opened my eyes to that. Cheeseman Reservoir, we're located halfway between Conifer and Woodland Park. They were surveying in 1898 and then started building the dam in 1900. We mostly do the water changes when water resources calls. The more water in the reservoir, the more you'll get out of the valves. Depending on the flow, if we're real low, we'll run one or two. They'll tell us to go up or down. And then it can vary anywhere from building fans, grading roads. I've been working here for 23 years full time. I like it up here because of the isolation, the scenery, the location, the people I work with. I grew up, my granddad's had horses, my dad's had horses, and we just fell into it. This is kind of like ranching, but without the cows. When the fire happened here during the Hayman, out of 8,500 acres, we own maybe a thousand didn't burn. We have had quite a bit of sediment come into the reservoir and it does diminish our holding capacity. One of the biggest challenges that we have at Strontra Springs Reservoir is gonna be uh, the result of major wildfires that have occurred upstream. It has posed lots of challenges that our engineers and watershed scientists have to look at. So they're doing their very best to come up with solutions that not only will uh, fix things in the short term, but also find long-term solutions. We aerial seeded with a helicopter and planted a bunch with four-wheelers. We got some of those trees that are doing real good. So water from Strontia Springs Reservoir goes to two different treatment plants, Foothills and Marston. About 80% of Denver water's raw water supply comes through Strontia Springs. Waterton Canyon is special because it's an interface between the natural world and then the man-made built environment. I'm one of three hydro operators that operate all the diversion dams and uh, pipelines through Waterton Canyon. Anytime Jade makes a release up at Cheeseman Reservoir, we're the next in line to catch that water. We really do work as a team here. Even when you've got lots of years under your belt, there's still something that pops up that, that you might need a little bit of help with. Uh, the journey of water, especially in Colorado, is so uh, dramatic. Being able to be a part of that and affect so many lives is pretty impressive and uh, awe-inspiring. What our treatment plan is where the water comes in and we treat it to drinking water standards. Denver Water serves 1.4 million people, so we cannot stop providing water to our customers. I'm kind of high level looking at the big picture of everything. My team at Marston, um, I'm incredibly proud of my team. The majority of the people at Denver Water are, they're just passionate about their jobs and they know how important their job is. 
We have great scientists that are really vested in making sure that the water that we test really culminates in the best we can put out. We are very proactive in the research that we do to ensure that the water quality not only stays optimal today, but it's also optimal tomorrow and for many years to come. When I had my second child, I decided to continue working because it is very important for them to see the role of a working mother, the role of a scientist, and the role of someone that doesn't have to choose between motherhood and science. We're the crew that goes in and we you know, lay the pipe and we line everything up for it all to kind of fall in place. We're the final piece of the puzzle that you know, brings the water to the people. Daily, we're kind of the face of Denver Water, so to speak, because we are dealing with them one-on-one. -on -one. It's a long journey for where that water comes from, and a lot of people don't understand that. At the end of the day, it's always nice to go home to a warm shower, so we give to give that to people. We have a saying on our crew, everybody goes home at the end of the day. It's very important to me that we go in and we do the job right the first time. A lot depends on it. We provide their drinking water. There's, there's certain standards that we have to follow. We can't cut that corner. Everybody's positive. They're willing to help you out. If you need help, they always have your back. When you work with them every day, I see them more than I actually see my family. Being a part of the crew makes it a lot easier to do our job. I've been married for 13 years. It'll be 14 this, this August. We have two kids, Caleb, he's 12, and Larray, she is eight. But we are also expecting our third baby, second girl, Olivia. I, I came to the United States directly to Denver, Colorado in 1997. I, I was 12 years old. I basically just came with my parents. I started everything that I now know uh, in middle school. Coming here as a 12-year-old, as a it was challenging. I also did not know English when I first moved here, but it also pushed me and encouraged me to, to learn English a lot faster. I've been looking for a job where I can use my skills. I went to school to study public relations. I've known Spanish since I was born. And now um, seeing that come to fruition, doing what I love, at Denver Water and be able to share our message, being blessed to, to have that. I have two boys, Giovanni and Leonardo. I think that the boys really enjoy the summer because it's time that they can spend together. They can try to race each other to see who's faster and it adds some competition and as boys they just love that. I've been working at Denver Water for almost a year now. I'm very proud of the work that I do at Denver Water. It feels nice to serve our communities and serve my hometown, for sure. Giovanni, my oldest son, if he sees someone drinking water, he'll be like, oh, my mom works at Denver Water. He's really proud and it makes me happy to see that as well. 
really amazing to see all of the hard work and all of the unique positions that contribute to the success of Denver Water. We want to hire the best and we really are just looking for that perfect candidate. There's other places where they don't have clean water, you know, and, and so we really just need to take care of it and cherish it the most we can. Being able to just turn on the tap and be able to drink out of it, it's such a huge benefit for my family and I. This is priceless. Denver International Airport is growing, and we're excited to share the newly completed Concourse CE skates with you. This is the second area to open as part of DEN's gate expansion project, which adds 39 gates and allows our airline partners to add more flights to more destinations. Southwest Airlines has moved in and is now operating out of these 16 new gates. There are so many things to love about this new space, and you'll immediately notice how open and bright it is. The gates offer a variety of seating options from soft lounge chairs to workspaces to more private seating. All the seats even have power outlets for charging. There are also more family restrooms and nursing rooms, and new restrooms with larger stalls and more space. In all, there's 530,000 square feet of new space. That's equal to approximately nine football fields, giving you plenty of space to relax before your flight. Of course, this new space wouldn't be complete without some new shops and restaurants including Aviano Coffee, Mr. Oso, Bardo, Cholan, Titulia Tea and Coffee Bar, Marsic Fine Foods, and travel convenience stores like Black Canyon Market and Goods and Long's Peak Market and Goods. These great shops and restaurants will open in 2023. And let's not forget one of the most anticipated areas, the new outdoor patio that provides views of the runways and features outdoor seating, fire pits, and a pet relief area. Below the 16 new gates for Southwest Airlines is a new facility that supports commuter airlines who connect Denver with smaller communities in the region and certain essential air service markets. This new space isn't all about functionality. It's sustainable too. In fact, sustainability is one of DEN's guiding principles. So building this space in a green way was a top priority. This area includes a rooftop solar system with the capability to generate nearly 355 kilowatts of electricity. Additionally, the project was designed with energy efficiency in mind and is projected to reduce energy use of the facility by 30% over conventional design. Low flow fixtures, toilets, and urinals are projected to reduce water use in the facility by approximately 47%. The project is on track to receive LEED Gold certification. We're excited for you to see for yourself how fantastic these new gates are and hope you get a chance to check them out the next time you're at DEN. See you soon.
Denver International Airport is no stranger to snow. And as we like to say, den no snow. The city of Denver averages 60 inches of snow per year, which is over two times the U.S. average of 28 inches of snow per year. During snow, the airport is responsible for maintaining a safe operating area for aircraft by clearing runways, taxiways, and ramp areas. The airport is also responsible for clearing Peña Boulevard, side roads, and parking areas. DEN has nearly 600 trained snow removal personnel. Snow crews are deployed at the start of the snowfall and remain in place 24-7 for the duration of the storm. DEN has around 600 pieces of snow removal equipment, including blowers, brooms, blades, and so much more. With two different types of melters, DEN can melt 150 to 600 tons of snow per hour. On the airfield, snow is cleared and melted since it's not feasible to store all that snow in piles. Multifunction machinery can plow, sweep, and blow snow and spread liquid and sand products at the same time. By using our state-of-the-art machinery, the airport has reduced the average amount of time needed to clear a runway from 45 minutes to under 15. The Federal Aviation Administration is responsible for safely spacing out arriving and departing aircraft. During winter operations, passengers should check their flight status with their airlines before coming to the airport to check for delays or cancellations. Airlines are responsible for de-icing operations, managing their flight schedules, and luggage operations. DEN has five centralized de-ice pads with a total of 27 de-icing spaces. The overall average time to de-ice an aircraft is less than 16 minutes. If conditions allow, around 48 to 64 aircraft can be de-iced per hour. DEN snow crews have earned the American Association of Airport Executives Falcon Post Award in 2021 and 2020 for outstanding snow and ice removal while maintaining airport operations during challenging winter conditions. Here at DEN, we're prepared for winter weather. We'll see you next time you travel in rain, shine, or snow. Beginning in November 2017, Colorado election law requires counties to conduct a new type of post-election audit called a risk-limiting audit, or RLA. In July 2018, the Denver Elections Division performed a risk-limiting audit for the primary election. Free and fair elections are the basis of a democratic society. Ensuring that voter choice is properly recorded and upheld is the basis of election confidence and peaceful transfers of power. Thanks to programs like mail-in ballots and ballot trace, the Denver Elections Division has garnered national attention. Idaho, Washington, Wisconsin, Virginia, West Virginia, state of California. Thank you for joining us here today for the second uh, risk-limiting audit. We're excited to have you here. Risk-limiting audits are another cutting-edge tool making your elections better, easier, faster, and more secure.
A risk-limiting audit uses statistical analysis to allow election officials to review only a few of all ballots cast in an election to double-check outcomes. Risk-limiting audits are now required by the Secretary of State for Colorado Elections. These audits use a random number seed and a computer algorithm to select specific random ballots to check against tabulation software results. The benefit of a risk-limiting audit is that only a tiny fraction of ballots must be checked to ensure strong statistical confidence in election outcomes. So only a tiny fraction of work and time compared to traditional methods of a full hand recount of ballots. At Denver Elections Division, the work that makes an audit possible starts with tracking. Selection of random ballots is very important. By selecting random ballots, there is a lower chance that a specific voting precinct or even any specific group of votes will be overrepresented in the audit. In order to select truly random ballots, however, election officials have to be able to find any one ballot from all ballots cast. 30, 62, 74, and that should be it. Paper ballots are imprinted with a specific identifier number. This number is used later to ensure that an electronic record of the ballot matches the physical paper ballot. Once ballots have been imprinted, they are organized into batches. These batches are in turn housed in ballot transfer cases, these boxes here. Careful record keeping and security procedures such as key card entry and 24-7 recordings help ensure that any one ballot is trackable and all ballots are secure. The ballots from each batch are then scanned through vote tabulation scanners. For the 2018 primary election, Denver Elections Division scanned 146,401 ballots on 12 tabulation scanners. So we have just a short demonstration for everybody today. Basically we've left one batch uncounted so you guys can kind of see the process of scanning into one batch. It's very simple. Uh, the workers would get the boxes off the shelf, bring it over to their station, open it up, break the seal, and then pull out the ballot batch. They would make note of the system will tell them what ballot batch number we're on. They would indicate that on the batch folder so they can be tracked all the way through the system. Remove the ballots. Place them in the scanner. <laughs> Including boxing, checking batch sizes, and reboxing and labeling ballots election officials worked at a rate of about 2,500 ballots per hour per scanner. All right, and then I'll check. Batch size is 116. I expected 116, so everything went through good. So at that point, I accept the batch. Am I sure? Yes, I'm sure. And that batch is now submitted. 
Most of the time, tabulation scanners can read voter marks to determine votes cast. Sometimes, improperly filled out ballots must be adjudicated, a process in which election workers review ballots and judge voter intention. Elections officials set the requirements for adjudication based on a percentage of the filled vote circle. For this election, officials instructed the software to flag ballots with 3 to 35% of a vote circle filled. This range means officials don't waste time on completely blank votes, but do judge smaller marks or partially filled out votes. Uh, this is adjudication, so this is the first ballot that was queued into the system. To that, so that's, that's a mark, and they're deciding that yes, that is a mark that can be counted as a vote, and so he is marking, he's checking it, right? And you can see the with, flag at the top in here. In accordance with a bipartisan team. So the bipartisan team is, a, is saying yes, that that should get credit. And then that's telling the system that ballot, on that ballot, that person should get credit. So it's adjusting what the original count was to give that person or that, that candidate credit. Once the scanners have tabulated ballots and all questionable ballots have been adjudicated, election officials export the cast vote record. This is an electronic report of the final vote tallies. Before the cast vote record is sent to the Colorado Secretary of State, it is hashed. Hashing is a cryptographic method of ensuring that transmitted information remains secure by representing large amounts of data as much smaller numeric values. Users select a specific key. When complex information like the cast vote record is interpreted by the specific key, it results in a hash, a long string of letters and numbers specific to that particular data. The receiving party interprets the transmitted cast vote record with the same key and checks to make sure the hashes match. Even small changes in the information to be hashed results in a different hash value, so checking hash values from the original file and the received file ensures that the received results match the cast vote record created by Denver Elections. With the results of the election in hand, a risk-limiting audit can begin. The risk limit set ahead of time by the Secretary of State is the risk that a wrong outcome, like the wrong person being declared a winner, would not trigger a full hand recount. So a 5% risk limit would mean that 95% of the time in which a wrong winner was declared, the audit would catch the mistake and trigger a full hand recount. Several factors affect how many ballots must be checked in the audit to achieve that 95% risk limit, from how many ballots were cast to the margin of victory in any one race. Lowers County Clerk and Recorder Republican. Yep. Douglas Governor again. Yep. For the 2018 primary, Denver Elections Risk Limiting Audit required checking 222 ballots in the first round, just 0.15% of the total votes cast. Thanks to probability and statistical math, examining this tiny fraction of votes cast has a 95% likelihood of catching problems with the election's outcome and requires only a fraction of the time and cost of a full recount. The purpose for all of this is so that voters can have trust. Again, the drawing of names. Right. He was first.
Reese. Process for You come up, you draw a die, and you roll it, preferably on the table. Alright, here we go. Eight. Alright, Colorado is the first state in the nation to perform rigorous risk-limiting audits on elections. Although a number of states require election results auditing, many specify only a small flat percentage to check or use methods that are too slow to be enacted before official results are declared. Jimmy, you're with? Uh, Polk County, Florida, and U.S. Foundation. Beginning in the general election of 2018, Colorado will perform risk-limiting audits in all counties that are able to export a cast vote record and are not hand-counting ballots. 59 out of 64 counties in the state. This statistically rigorous method of auditing is also supported by transparency. The Secretary of State makes publicly available not only the results, but the process of a risk-limiting audit from open source software to a public meeting to determine the audit random number seed. That random number seed was entered into a computer algorithm, which created a list of specific ballots. All right, let's rock and roll. So, uh, as I Under Election Rule 25.2.2, Colorado's Secretary of State must publish audit random number seeds, allowing outside observers and interested members of the public to check the seed and the location of selected ballots through the open source software. So it's all available for you to see and verify. And that's really the whole purpose of this, is so that people can have confidence their vote was counted, it was counted correctly. And ultimately, I believe that inspires people to vote. With the list of randomly selected ballots, Denver Elections Division gets to work. Among the entire collection of ballots, elections officials must locate and retrieve the exact ballots that were selected at random by the Secretary of State's audit software. The Elections Division's earlier record-keeping work makes this possible, but still requires locating and pulling many ballot transfer cases to find the 222 ballots needed for the first round of the audit. Each of these ballot transfer cases has been tracked, logged, and secured throughout the entire election process, with seals and double-check signatures providing an extra check on each ballot transfer case. 
required number of ballots pulled for an audit is based on the risk limit set, the total number of votes, and the margin of victory. Smaller margins of victory require more, sometimes many more, votes to check. The margin of victory is the difference in quantity of votes for one side versus the other. Comparing two groups of anything, whether it's money, apples, or votes, is pretty easy to do if you have a large quantity in one group and a much smaller quantity in the other. Even if you make a couple of mistakes counting, the big difference means you can still be very confident that the big group is bigger. If your two groups are closer to the same size, there is less difference between them, it requires more investigation to know which group is actually larger. For a risk-limiting audit, a higher margin of victory means a bigger difference between the groups of votes, so fewer votes need to be checked to be confident in the outcome, which means fewer ballots need to be pulled by Denver elections. In addition to finding the ballots, elections officials print the previously saved image file of each selected ballot onto goldenrod sheets to act as placeholders in the batches. Officials reopen the sealed ballot transfer cases, find the appropriate ballot batch, and double-check the selected ballot against the printed image. If the imprinted number matches, officials know they have properly tracked the correct ballot. Goldenrod ballot image is put in the spot of the original ballot to make the return process faster and provide a second check to ensure the right ballot is in the right spot. If a second round of auditing is required, the Goldenrod shows the audit board that the ballot it represents was pulled for a prior round. If the imprinted number matches, officials know they have properly tracked the correct ballot. In a recorded meeting with outside observers, each physical ballot is hand-checked by the audit board, which is made up of one Republican and one Democrat. This bipartisan configuration helps avoid bias when judging any particular race. For each ballot and each actual vote, a board member must decide the voter's intention. The audit board judges only the original ballot in order to ensure that the original voter marks are being judged. If there is a consensus between the board members on the vote, that vote is entered into the risk-limiting audit software. If the board can't agree, no consensus is selected in the software, which may count against the risk limit of the audit. The audit software checks the board members' review decisions against the cast vote record from the tabulation scanners and any earlier adjudication. If the votes entered into the software are the same as the votes recorded by the tabulation scanners, the audit will be successful. In the case of discrepancies, the audit software checks how the new information would have changed the race outcome. 
If the audit board's vote interpretation increases the margin of victory, the math underlying a risk-limiting audit will likely not trigger further investigation. This is because the outcome will still be correct. If it lowers the margin of victory, the audit might require a second round of ballots to be checked. For example, let's say candidate A ran against candidate B for local office. The original election results were that candidate A received 55 votes and candidate B received 45 votes. During the risk-limiting audit, the audit board finds a ballot that was counted toward candidate B's total, but they judge should properly have been counted toward candidate A. That changes candidate A's margin of victory, but it doesn't change the election outcome. If the audit board found the opposite case, that a vote counted for candidate A should have gone to candidate B, that indicates a different margin of victory. In this case, although the election outcome remains the same, the margin of victory has narrowed, which means the audit might require reviewing more ballots to achieve the same level of statistical confidence in the outcome, especially if any other discrepancies occur. The statistical math of a risk-limiting audit is much more complex than this simplified example. Depending on the total number of votes cast and the margin of victory, discrepancies between the audit board's judgments and the official cast vote record might require pulling a much larger number of ballots than in the first round. Further discrepancies could require a third round of auditing, and so on, up to and including a full hand recount of every ballot. Audit board members judge each ballot separately based on the original marks made by voters. By judging the original ballots rather than the stored digital image files or the goldenrod printed images, the audit board avoids judging any digital artifacting or other problems that potentially could have occurred in a machine tabulation system. Using the actual ballot allows the board to judge voter intent without any interference or influence. After the first round of the 2018 primary election audit, Denver's Elections Division reported zero discrepancies between the audit board's reporting and the original cast vote record. A perfect score. Find out more about risk-limiting audits and other ways Denver Elections Division ensures fair and free elections at denvervotes.org. Have you ever wondered how your bag gets from the check-in counter to the plane or the plane to the baggage carousel? Well, today we're going to give you an inside look at Denver International Airport's automated baggage handling system, which is one of the largest systems in the United States. Our system measures nearly 10 miles long and has over 5,000 conveyors that process more than 2 million bags each month. In fact, the system is capable of screening more than 12,000 bags per hour. The journey of a bag begins when you check your bag with your airline at the start of your departing trip, where your bag is tagged, measured, and weighed. The bag will then enter the back of house area and begin its journey from level six to level three of the Jeppesen terminal. Once loaded on the energy efficient conveyor belt, the system reads the bag tag and sends the bag to the appropriate screening area based on your airline and flight destination. The bag is tracked throughout the system using a unique ID and is screened for the safety of our passengers. 
If the bag fails to clear, it is automatically routed to a TSA officer for further screening. Once a bag clears the screening process, it travels to the baggage sortation system where the bag tag is scanned again and sent to the baggage makeup area. Here, an airline agent hand scans the tag and places it on a baggage cart for delivery to the plane. At DEN, the baggage carts travel through an underground tunnel to the appropriate gate where it is loaded onto the aircraft. On average, it takes around 20 minutes for a piece of luggage to travel from check-in to an aircraft. Incredible for such a complex system. Upon your arrival at DEN, the airline will unload your bag from the plane onto a cart and drive through the tunnels to unload your baggage on the belt that feeds up to the baggage claim where you will retrieve your bag. DEN has 18 domestic inbound baggage carousels and three international flight inbound carousels. We also have six oversized carousels for items such as skis, snowboards, and golf clubs. DEN is one of the only airports in the world with systems of this size. As you can see, DEN uses an efficient high-tech system to make it easy for your airline to reunite you with your luggage so you can enjoy your travels. We hope you enjoyed this behind-the-scenes look of our baggage system. See you next time. My name is Hunter Hayes, and I know my buzz warning signs. One shot is about knowing my limits, or not necessarily knowing my limits. I start with one shot to have a good time. Everybody knows how easy one can turn into five. I think a sign that I'm buzzed is when I start solving not only my own problems, but the entire world's problems. When I know I'm going out, I know I'm going to start with calling for a ride. One shot at a time. Buzz driving is drunk driving. Cut. Yeah. No, that was great. So. You sure? You guys happy? Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. Easy day, man. Thank you so much. Totally, yeah. I really uh, appreciate it. Do you want us to sign your guitar? I mean, we no, we we'll totally do. We'll yeah, it's fine. In. We'll be, we'd be happy. Sorry, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta roll. Good to see you guys. Thanks. We should have asked for his signature. Deaths from opioid overdoses are mounting in Colorado. These powerful drugs include heroin, morphine, and fentanyl. Each can relieve pain and evoke intense feelings of pleasure. But the same drugs, whether prescribed by a doctor or bought on the street, can quickly turn deadly. Found in prescriptions like OxyContin and Vicodin, Opioids can be found in illegal drugs, such as heroin, as well as the synthetic opioid, fentanyl. Fentanyl is 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine. Even small doses, and we're talking here micrograms, can be deadly. The opioid effects from fentanyl are heightened and highly addictive, even after the first dose. Fentanyl kills by interrupting the normal function of opioid receptors in the brain and throughout the body including the brain's ability to regulate breathing. The high potency of fentanyl greatly increases the risk of overdose, 
whether you're an addict or just experimenting with drugs. Remember, Denver, one pill can kill. For additional help, please visit denvergov.org and search Mental Health Services and Support for a full list of substance use services. Hey Denver, the decision is yours on April 4th. Make your voice heard by voting in the 2023 municipal election. Stay up to date on the candidates and the issues you'll see on your ballot at denverdecides.org. There you'll find Denver's most complete guide to help you choose your next mayor, city council members, and more. Candidate profiles, live candidate forums, and ballot issue breakdowns can all be found at denverdecides.org. Denver Decides, where Denver voters turn to get informed. from executive session. Uh, seeing no other business before this body, we have a few consent agenda uh, items. If anyone would like to uh, call them off and it doesn't look like it, we will be adjourned. Thank you.